treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia, was on his way home. He had been to Jerusalem to worship God and was going back home in his carriage. And as he rode along, he was reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over to that carriage and stay close to it. And so Philip ran over and heard him read from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him, Do you understand what you are reading? And the official replied, How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And he invited Philip to climb up and sit in the carriage with him. And the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. Like a sheep that is taken to be slaughtered. Like a lamb that makes no sound when its wool is cut off. He did not say a word. He was humiliated and justice was denied him. And no one will be able to tell about his descendants because his life on earth has come to an end. And the official asked Philip, tell me of whom was the prophet saying this, of himself or someone else? And then Philip began to speak. And starting from this passage of scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they travelled down the road, they came to a place where there was some water. And the official said, here is some water. What is to keep me from being baptised? And the official ordered the carriage to stop. And both Philip and the official went down into the water. And Philip baptised him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took Philip away. I'm not promising that won't happen today either. And the official did not see him again, but continued on his way, full of joy. And Philip found himself in Ozotus, and he went on to Caesarea, and on the way he preached the good news in every town. And what good news it was. Right. If there is anything that terrifies the authorities of any age, it's the emergence of someone who develops an enormous enthusiastic following. Julius Caesar returned from conquering Gaul in about 51 BC, and his triumphant army against all the existing rules of the time, he led his army across the river Rubicon, just 200 miles to the north of Rome. And the phrase crossing the Rubicon has entered our language for anybody who dares to cross a line from which there is no return. 
His acclamation by the crowds led to the existing Roman government, led by a man called Pompey, fleeing Rome in about 49 BC. And he then engaged with Julius Caesar's forces at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece. Julius won this battle and was then proclaimed as Dictator Perpetuo, or the Dictator for Life, in 45 BC. But his life didn't last very long. He was assassinated within the year. Students of Shakespeare among you will recall the line that the great bard put into the mouth of Brutus. I came to bury Caesar, not to praise him. When Jesus came, half a century later, he too terrified the authorities. When he also developed an enormous enthusiastic following. And his crucifixion was an attempt by the authorities, both Jewish and Roman, to halt that following. And it worked well, at least until the rumours of his resurrection circulated. Then his popularity just grew and grew. Fifty days or so after the crucifixion of Jesus, the crucifixion that was supposed to crush the following of this populist preacher, stories began to circulate of a coming. And the Pentecost event just seemed to restore all the ground lost in the gap since the crucifixion. And the followers of Jesus, who were in the main simple folk, suddenly emerged with all the dynamic powers of their leader. And the authorities suddenly realised that far from being sorted, the followers of the way, as they were known, were becoming more and more popular. And there were now dozens of them. In the face of the advice from the chairman of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel, the persecution of the Christians began almost at once. And within a very short time, things had escalated to the point where there were, were a rather well-educated convert when a well-educated convert called Stephen was hauled before the Sanhedrin and then after a trial of sorts, he was taken out and stoned to death. And the event raised the stakes. A prominent Pharisee called Saul began leading the persecution of all those who acknowledged the name of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And many of the followers of Jesus immediately began to disperse, 
to areas around and about where the danger was less intense. And it is in this turbulent atmosphere that we suddenly find this strange and rather private story that features a follower of Jesus who doesn't get a lot of coverage within our New Testament. Philip, the evangelist. Scholars are divided about whether the New Testament mentions one Philip or two. The first is the Apostle, who is described in John's Gospel. He was the brother of Nathaniel, and like so many other disciples, made his living fishing in Lake Galilee. His story is told through the Gospel of John, where he clearly played a significant part among Jesus' disciples. And it follows, therefore, that he would have immediately become a major part of the early church following Pentecost. This would immediately distinguish him from the other Philip, Philip the Evangelist. He only appears in the book of Acts, where he is elected to be a deacon. The deacons were appointed to ensure that the poor relief was distributed equitably between the Jewish and the Greek-speaking Christians after a dispute. And as early as the second century, it appears that people became confused between these two Philips, and that confusion has remained with us ever since. Under the pressure of persecution in Jerusalem, Philip, the evangelist, moved to Samaria and preached to the church there. And at a later time, he seems to have had a vision of an angel who instructed him to head for Gaza and to look out for an Ethiopianish eunuch travelling back home from Jerusalem. Extra-biblical evidence puts Philip among the 70 or the 72. We aren't quite sure what the text is actually saying at that point. That Jesus sent out to preach during his ministry. And so, like so many others, he became part of the outer fringe of the church. And this is why he was selected to be one of the first deacons in chapter 6. He seems to have spent much of the earlier part of his life ministering in the area of the ancient Philistine lands in the west. And he is recorded as being at Caesarea, the Roman administrative centre, at Ashdod, the old Philistine capital, and here at Gaza in this story. And later on, he became the Bishop of Aden in western Turkey, just 35 miles east of Ephesus. Philip's willingness to head out into the desert at the behest of an angel is quite remarkable. 
and it suggests that his spiritual sensitivity was quite strong. He appears also to have fathered four girls who later became famous as prophets in their own right and we can conclude therefore that they had a similar spiritual sensitivity. Right. The Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuchs are not usually met with as you walk the streets of Rossendale. Stick your hand up if you've actually met with one. I didn't think you would, no. And so we need to spend a little bit of time discussing who they were and how they became eunuchs. The word eunuch comes from the Latin word eunuchus. And the Greek equivalent was the word castratus, which gives us our English word castration. In the ancient world, castration was carried out by the rather brutal procedure of simply crushing or removing the male genitalia. And at this point, every man in the room will cringe. The earliest reference to a eunuch comes from the Sumerian city of Lagash, in the area we call Mesopotamia, not far from the birthplace of Abraham, Ur. It was situated in what is now Iraq, close to the Iranian border. And the nearest town that you're likely to recognise is Basra, which became the headquarters of the British forces in the Second Gulf War. There are several reasons why a man would be castrated in ancient civilizations. He may be castrated to maintain a high soprano singing voice, as this was thought to be a desirable quality in the many temple choirs. He may have been castrated as a form of punishment after being taken prisoner following a defeat in battle. But the most common reason he was was to provide a safe protection force and also domestic servants for a harem. In the ancient world and in a few remote parts of the Middle East today, rich men, mostly noble, ru- notable rulers, would have a significant number of wives. I recognise that this picture is nowhere near as glamorous as the ones that you get from Hollywood. Then as now, wives weren't cheap. Their presence in a palace or a castle would require a significant number of servants, some of whom would of necessity have to be male. But you couldn't have males who were free to have their wicked way with the wives. And so castration was the insurance policy that ensured that the babies the wives bore 
all belong to the ruler. Ethiopia is often credited with being the cradle of humanity. In 1974, an American scientist, Donald Johansson, discovered a skeleton in the Awash Valley in Ethiopia that has since been declared as a hominid, Astropolithicus afarensis. And Mark won't have to say anything as hard as that. The skeleton has been named Lucy. Because Johansson was a Beatles fan. And throughout the time of the discovery, the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, was playing on the camp's record player. What a strange reason to give somebody a name. Lucy lived for some 3.2 million years ago. And she is the oldest known ancestor to modern humans. And it is widely believed that everybody in this room is a direct descendant of her. Since then, Ethiopia has been a prosperous trading nation. Having traded with the Egyptians as early as the 10th century BC. And it's only in recent years that Ethiopia has become famous for the terrible civil wars and the famines that have killed so many of their people in the last half century. Beta Israel is a community of Hebrew believers who have lived in Ethiopia since time immemorial. The origins of this Ethiopian community is shrouded in mystery. It is believed by some to go right back to the time of Moses. The first clear reference to the community in Egypt, Ethiopia is a visitor to King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba. She visited Solomon in the 10th century BC and the scripture tells us that she asked him some hard questions. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 10. It is also widely believed that the Song of Solomon is a love song written by Solomon to her. She must have been quite a lady. The community of Beta Israel, sometimes called the Falashas, have lived in Ethiopia right up to the 20th century. Almost all of them have since migrated to Israel between about 1950 and 1990. There are very few descendants of Beta Israel left in Ethiopia today. Our Ethiopian eunuch appears to have been a member of Beta Israel who had visited Jerusalem 
presumably to attend the temple for a festival. And he was apprehended by Philip just as he was studying Isaiah 53. So here's the bit Janus has been sat on the end of her seat waiting to happen. Isaiah 53 is a passage in the prophecy of Isaiah that is famous to Christians as it is inevitably interpreted within the context of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, scholars don't think it was written by Isaiah, Isaiah, but by a follower of his, a prophet, who lived some 300 years later, during the exile in Babylon. In Judaism, Isaiah 53 has been something of a mystery. It has been the source of many debates about whom or what the suffering servant represented. Debates that continue to this day. The two main views held are that it refers to an individual who symbolises the corporate suffering of Israel. Or it was thought to represent the nation itself, who in some way suffers for its own ills. But Christian scholars are always quick to point out that there are many similarities that exist between the suffering servant in Isaiah and the life and death of Jesus. And Isaiah 53 in particular reveals an uncanny similarity to the experience of being crucified. It is for this reason that Isaiah 53 is held in such high esteem by so many Christians today. Our Ethiopian, however, being a Hebrew, lacked this enlightenment and it fell to Philip to explain it to him. Philip was likely to have told some of the stories abounding in the Gospels, and although we don't have a record of the conversation, we can conclude that he challenged the eunuch to accept Jesus as the Messiah. I understand that there is a road running from Gaza into Egypt along the north coast of Sinai. It has been known since ancient times as the King's Highway. That road has numerous waterholes and lakes along its length, which culminate in the Bitter Lakes that have since been incorporated into the Suez Canal. It could have been at any one of these that the next bit of the story took place. Most religions of the world have some kind of ritual washing ceremony as a sign of their commitment to God. In a land that has long been hot and dusty, washing in various forms have become regular features of their culture and of their social interactions. We are intrigued when we read of the tradition of foot washing 
and the way that Jesus used that tradition to teach his disciples a new understanding of humility. The Romans are famed for their delight in bathing, in recreation. And the classic mark that shows that an ancient excavation is Roman is the presence of a heated communal bath. The remains of such baths can be found all over the Roman world. And this one is at Housesteads in Northumberland and is one of the most northerly. Several such remains still exist at various fortress sites across the UK. In Britain, the most spectacular Roman bath is the one that gives bath in Somerset its name. Here, the Romans utilised an existing hot spring that already had a reputation as a place for healing amongst the Celts. And it was perpetuated by the church for many years as a pilgrimage site for healing and prayer. The buildings around the pool was replaced, extended and rebuilt at regular intervals throughout its 1800 years. But the most recent rebuilding was in 1889 when our Victorian forefathers built the present complex to cope with the growing tourist industry. The Jewish community used places of washing to emphasise that they would become unclean quite naturally and easily and without any effort. A washing which often involved a complete submerging of the body was required from time to time whenever an individual committed a sin or touched anything that the Torah said was unclean. Such a washing was accompanied by a preparation period and a time of being barred from certain holy events. The temple had a laver resembling a large font in front of the altar where the officiating priest was required to wash himself before administering the sacrifices or before entering the holy place. When John the Baptist began his ministry, he was preaching a gospel of repentance to the Jews. He was calling upon them to be baptised in the Jordan. And by doing that, he was indicating that they as Jews needed a cleansing. A cleansing that had echoes of crossing the Jordan when the people of Israel first entered the promised land. And John was calling them back to their roots. And asking them to start again. They were, of course, scandalised by such a suggestion. John had pointed out to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch 
of Galilee that he had married Herodias, who had previously been married to his brother Philip. And as Philip was still alive, this constituted a forbidden relationship in Judaism. And although he was reluctant, Antipas was egged on by Herodias and her daughter Salome. And finally this led to John being beheaded. Jesus took that event as a signal that it was time for his own ministry to begin. Subsequently, the early Christian community soon adopted baptism as the formal demonstration of entering the Christian community. It's not a cleansing as such, but a demonstration that such a cleansing can take place, or has taken place. It's an indication that the baptismal candidate has indeed had an encounter with God and that that encounter has had a transforming effect upon their lives. This is why we offer the candidates an opportunity. We don't force them into it. (laughs) It's an opportunity to tell us something of this encounter with God that they have had. I love to listen to these testimonies. It lifts my spirit and often shows me that God's grace is far more capable of saving us from the uttermost than I could otherwise possibly believe. You see, baptism is a witness. It's a way of demonstrating to our friends and family that at some point in the past we have committed ourselves to following Jesus. It's a way of reminding ourselves of what we have done when life gets tough later on. And it's a graphic demonstration that we are affirming that our old life is done with And that we are choosing to embark on a new life where our priority is to follow the leading of God's Spirit. The baptismal pool is approximately the proportions, if slightly larger than size, of a grave. The candidate goes down into the waters as they would into a coffin. But then they immediately spring back up. Again because they have received the gift of eternal life. And they might drown if they didn't. I just had to put that one up. Just for the record... We are not conducting adult baptism. We are conducting believers' baptism. If you are a believer, then baptism is for you. If you are seeking or interested, 
then you need to talk to me. Or perhaps one of the other deacons, and preferably today. Okay? If you are sensing the call of God to join us, you need to talk to one of us as soon as is possible. After the act of baptism, we will pause to get our breath back. No, not that. So that those of you who feel led can read or quote scripture or any other words that you believe God would have you to declare over Mark at this time. So that's something for the rest of you to be thinking about for a few minutes. Then we will commend Mark to God in prayer and we will ask that God would endow him with his spirit so that he would have the power necessary to fulfill the calling that he has been called to. Now I've got